I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hilo, hi. <laughs> I think I meant to say hello, but I combine it with hi, and I call it Hilo, which is an old card game or something. It's certainly a place in Hawaii. Either way, why are you still here? I've lost your faith and confidence, and I'm going to have to gain it back. But if you are, we were made for each other. I'm Matt Gorley, and this is I Was There Too, the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. Period. <laughs> Today, Lisa Jacob from Mrs. Doubtfire, from Independence Day, from the short film George Lucas in Love, which swept the internet a while back. We talk all about her experience uh, in working firsthand and intimately with Robin Williams, her book about being a child actress. We also talk a little bit about Independence Day, which is a film where the whole crux of the mission relies on the compatibility of an early model Apple laptop and the network of an entire alien technology. I can't even get my iPhone to sync with my desktop. Am I right, the greatest generation? And after that, there's a, a brand new segment called I Was R2. I'll just let you wait to figure out what that even means, because I'm not entirely sure myself. Thanks for coming to hear with your ears. Let's begin. The film, Mrs. Doubtfire. The year, 1993. The role, Lydia Hiller. The actor, Lisa Jacob. Lisa Jacob, I understand there's some peril in you putting on some headphones. Is that right? I, I, I'm really kind of taking a risk by being here with you today and wearing the headphones. What happened recently? So I did uh, the audiobook for my memoir, and I, I read the audiobook, and it was all going fine until the last day that I was in there, and I went to put on the headphones, and my my foot kind of got caught on the cord, and I ended up nailing myself in the face with uh, the headphones. Got a really big bruise. There was a lot of kind of throbbing. It was um, 
quite unfortunate. That takes some effort to get a bruise from headphones. You know what? I also broke my back falling out of a chair. What? So I, there is no limit to the amount of damage I can do to my body. I, I feel um, a camaraderie with you because I recently sprained my neck toweling off. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And awesome. I would love to say that's age, but I think I also did that in my early 20s too. So there's just something about me that it's probably just like a lack of movement on a general daily basis, I think. It's just sort of a lack of general physical grace, <laughs> I think, for me, which I've just come to accept. So the book that you mentioned is called You Look Like That Girl. I'm reading it now. I'm almost done with it. I have to tell you that it's a gold mine for me because usually I have to do all this internet research and you can't really trust the sources. And I have so many questions and so much material that you yourself have provided. I wish every guest had something like this that oh I could read. Oh my gosh. It's well, great. thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, the first question I'm going to start out with is that I want you to tell this story. When you first arrived to San Francisco to shoot Mrs. Doubtfire, Chris Columbus, the director, introduced you to his mother. Yeah. So we had just begun rehearsals on Mrs. Doubtfire and Matt Lawrence and Mara Wilson and I were having to go to school as well at the same time. And so we were kind of juggling all of these things and we had been in school and we came to set and uh, Chris's mom was there. And so we were all really into being very professional. You, you know, we were 14, 13 and five, I think, were our ages at the time. And so we were going to meet our boss's mom. And so we had all of these really professional sounding things to say. And we tried to, you know, make small talk and things like that. And uh, she was very nice. She was a little, maybe a little odd, eccentric, but lovely. And uh, it was not until later we realized that we had actually sat down with Euphigenia Doubtfire. Was it full accent and full character and everything? Full character, oh. accent, hair, makeup, wardrobe. And But you had met Robin Williams at this point because you had auditioned with him, right? Yeah, we had done screen tests with Robin and Sally. So we definitely knew Robin, but we absolutely did not make the connection. Was that maybe the moment that they knew that this film was going to work, that, that you could – he could pass, you know, convincingly. I think we had all been a little concerned. Really? Reading the script, you know, you're really not sure how it's going to go. And you kind of worry maybe we're all committing career suicide <laughs> and just doing a bad Tootsie rip off. <laughs> well, yeah, I did think that every decade seems to have its man and drag kind of seminal film. So there's Tootsie, there's Mrs. Doubtfire. I have to admit when I got into the 2000s, I was struggling for maybe, I don't know, Mama – from Tyler Perry or like white <laughs> chicks or something. But I think my theory falls apart. But they make continuous references to the fact that Robin Williams is so hairy and how hard it would be for him to pull off a woman. But they kind of they kind of do and didn't. Uh, oh, there was a lot of knuckle shaving. But yes. <laughs> and knuckle gazing, I understand from your book, too. Right? Yes. Well, it's hard not to look when there's hair actively growing <laughs> by the moment, you know. But uh, yeah, it. it we we at that moment when we were totally fooled, we're like, okay, this is this this might this might be interesting. Let's start from the beginning because I, I want to talk about Mrs. Duffer, but your whole acting career and then your life later on in general is so interesting as laid out in your book. And I think this is the first time that I've had a legitimate former child actor on this show. So I want to talk about all that comes along with that and the path that you've taken. So. You started out at a young age in Canada, right? You were born and raised in Canada. Yeah. What, what kind of got you your start? 
So I lived in the suburbs of Toronto, and I was with my parents at a farmer's market, and there was a guy there that came up to us and said, hey, I work for this company, we're casting this commercial, I think that this kid right here would be perfect for it. My parents, well, I think my parents were fairly concerned he might just be a random pervert, and uh, were were pretty quick to kind of usher me away, but he handed them a card. And so uh, I kind of wasn't sure what was going on and was asking them what it was about. And and my parents said, well, you know, think about if you're interested in going for an audition for a commercial. And, uh, you know, I was I was four. I was think about it. Yeah. Like, you know, weigh the implications (laughs) of what that will mean for your life. But, you know, I was four. Kids, you know, you're kind of like a dog. You're ready to go for a ride in the car. Right. Like, what? what is it? Sure, yeah, let's go. So I I wanted to go and check it out. And, and that audition led to a, an, an agent and more auditions. And kind of the, the random encounter led to an 18-year career. So it eventually led you to California doing roles on Night Court, Ramblin' Rose, I would love it if you would tell your John Malkovich story as well when you worked with John Malkovich. Yeah. At I, a pretty early age too, right? You were I think I was about six, seven, something like that. I did a movie called Eleni with John Malkovich. And it was a very serious piece and as you would imagine with a Malkovich joint, I think. Absolutely. It yeah. was sort of perfect for him. And it it was fairly early on in his career and, and I think was kind of spot on for him. And so I, I played a child and as I often did as a child, (laughs) and I was the granddaughter of the guy that Malkovich was, was coming to do this revenge killing. And so my role was to walk into the room as John Malkovich has a gun to my grandfather's head and he's about to kill him for torturing his mother and all kinds of horrible things. And so my job is to basically like induce guilt <laughs> with big eyes and, and a sad face. So I had never worked with guns before, pretty phobic of guns uh-huh. and still am. And so I had um, – had a conversation with my mom before where she explained, you know, like everything on movie sets, it's pretend, it's fake, it's a fake gun, it can't hurt you, you're safe, you're fine. And uh, a crew member made an unfortunate decision to uh, try to encourage me in my acting and say, just as we were about to roll, that maybe my mom had lied that maybe it was a real gun, maybe it was loaded, and maybe I really was going to die. There are, are numerous things wrong with this, but <laughs> it, what kills me is the double-fold thing of it's one thing that he's going to scare you to let you think that maybe a real gun's going to be pointed in or around you in the room, but that your mother had betrayed you is so awful. <laughs> It was a really unusual choice that I don't think I will ever understand. Do you think that was just his random idea or did it come from on high? I really don't know. But Uh I think there there is kind of this idea that kids don't know how to act. And 
that always baffles me as a concept because look at kids. They're acting all the yeah, time. Yeah, they're the best. They are talking to stuffed animals. They have imaginary friends, all of that. It is innate in 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 kids, in humans. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we do is we, we pretend to be other things and other people. And so I think that that's um, – pretty detrimental to think that a, a kid kind of can't handle that. So what happened? You thought there was real danger. Oh, and I lost my mind. Yeah. I freaked out. And During the take or as he said that? Uh, it, during the take. Okay. Because I kind of had to walk into the room. He said that and I, 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 I don't know exactly what I thought, but I walked in and then saw the gun and I'm like, well, wait, now I'm not <laughs> sure. Hold on. And so there was – crying and arm flapping and all of those things that little kids do. But what was pretty spectacular was John Malkovich, instead of kind of rolling his eyes and and, um, saying something nasty about kids on set, he sat down with me. And he sat down with with the gun master and they took the gun apart to show me there was no bullets and that it was safe. And that was just a really – Really spectacular and thoughtful thing for him to have done and that when balance, he didn't need to. That balances uh, Malkovich out as far as this show goes because I had a previous guest who told the story of riding in an elevator with him and that it wasn't a pleasant experience. So I'm glad that we could bring him back to center. Let's now. bring him back. Yeah. I will I will always love him for doing that for yeah, me because it was just a nice. really um, – just a really human thing to do, yeah. you know. Yeah. You see somebody in pain, and you feel like you can make it better, and 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 he did. Yeah. All right. So let's flash forward a little bit to Mrs. Doubtfire. Let's find out how you ended up in this film. Was it just a straightforward audition? What was your story there? I think there were a couple of auditions that I actually don't remember very well, but I probably met with the casting director and then maybe met with Chris Columbus after that. What I do remember is the screen test, and they flew us out to San Francisco, and they had probably three kids for each of the three children's roles in the movie. And then they would sort of like mix and match us. And we went in and there was kind of a a set built and we would hang out with Robin and Sally and and read scenes and do a little improv. And And he wasn't in costume or makeup at this point, right? Correct. He was just – yeah, he was just as Daniel Hillard at at that point. Uh And so it was – Really amazing, actually, because they they matched up Matt and Mara and I pretty quickly, and we bonded pretty much instantly. And you look like you could be Sally Field's children. It's incredible. Yeah, and I think uh, that that bond really came through on screen, which I thought was really cool. And you don't always get that on every movie. You don't instantly feel like family with the people that you're working with all the time. And uh-huh. so that was really special. And as an only child, the, the, the chance to have siblings for, for a few months was pretty great. Yeah, I read something about that in your book where you even quoted – or not quoted. You even mentioned the film Speed about how you bond together with the people that you work with and then it's gone. It's just you say goodbye and it's like going to summer camp and really – and I remember this doing plays that you really – Showmance is not the right term, but you have those as well. But also just these friendships that that spring up and then poof, 
gone yeah. unless you continue them. But even then you're not seeing them on a day-to-day basis. And that's a strange life to live. It really is. It's very intense. I was actually talking about that to somebody the other day. And he was like, yep, I was in Vietnam. It was a lot like that. I was like, <laughs> oh, it's not an association I would make. <laughs> I feel that way about okay. my grad school experience. I don't talk much about it, but I forever bonded with the people that I went through it with. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I See, I love it when like the superficial details, war, movie set, grad school, those all change. <laughs> but the underlying, uh, the underlying feeling there is very similar. So what was it like working with Williams, but, um, particularly improvising with him? I imagine that would be invigorating and sometimes frustrating and exhausting. And what was the experience like? Quite terrifying at yeah. first. I had really never done comedy, let alone improv. My my career up until age 14 had always been – um, you know, I was the kid who was upset about something, you know, <laughs> why, either do, you, why I had, do you think that was, was that the, the essence that you exuded or I think I was a moody kid. Yeah. I've always had a little <laughs> sense of darkness within me. I think maybe that comes through. I don't know. You know, I did a lot of the kind of disease of the week movies or disease like of the, the week, the, um, you know, I'm sad because my mom works too much movies or, what, you know, whatever it is. One of my favorite genres. Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I was used to just crying a lot on, on film. And so the chance to, to work in comedy was, was exciting but also very scary. And, of course, my, my first time venturing into that, I end up with the master of all things comedic. So that was um, a learning curve. Did they Definitely. prepare you for that at all or just throw you no. in? So you had no idea that he would be going off book. and No idea. And, you know, again, I was, I was a very serious 14-year-old actor and I took my job really seriously. And so I would always come in and I feel like I was so prepared with my lines. And then my lines were completely irrelevant when I got there. So it was really um, – I, I learned very quickly that – when Robin went off, I couldn't just kind of stand there with this panicked look on my face and, like, <laughs> gaze over at the director like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. So I learned to just kind of relax into it a little bit more. And, and it's a great acting lesson, right? You can't just sort of wait to say your line. You actually have to listen and respond to the other person and uh, – be a little bit more present and, and in the moment. Would he improvise dramatically as well as comedically in some of the serious scenes as well? Or was yeah, it was all. Um, there would be some scenes that you know maybe we would start off being pretty close to the script, and then it would sort of you know go in all directions. But it really gave um, the other actors license to, to improv a little bit too. And I mean, Sally was great at that. And I, so admittedly, I had to do a little bit of research myself to come here today because I realized that I had not seen Doubtfire since probably, you know, 94. Uh So I actually watched it again. And what, what did you feel? Well, first of all, it is wildly uncomfortable to watch myself <laughs> on screen. It is just not something that even I with that much enjoy. time removed, you you 
Yeah, it's just weird. Uh-huh. It's a very, very strange experience. Yeah, because most people don't have a period of their life locked in in high definition, you know? I mean, I could go back to old VHS and old Super 8 film, but it's it's more like a dream. This is – it's weird because it's fictional, but it's so clear. You get to see exactly what you looked like at a period in your life. And I think that is part of it because it's it's me, but it's not me. Uh-huh. And it is sort of a very strange disconnect. But it was really kind of fun to watch it for other reasons, to to remember how funny Sally was in that movie. I mean, she was just sort of amazing. And, uh, you know, obviously it was – it's – hard and it I think will continue to be hard to to watch Robin but it was really um it was kind of fun to watch again the three of you guys do such a strong acting performance and at such a young age did you find that that was something just instinctual you just had it or for instance the scene when you're saying goodbye to him for the first time as he's leaving the house he has to move out yeah you all have these very real tender moments and in in your mind are is there a process you're doing for that acting or are you just going off instinct i think the bond that we all had was really strong and really real so it was pretty easy to kind of fall into that um those tender moments because we we just kind of thought about gosh yeah we are gonna have to say goodbye at the end of this movie. So it's pretty oh. easy to to kind of touch those those emotions. And then while you were working on this, if I'm not mistaken, you were basically kicked out of your high school, right, for having left too often to do work, right? Yeah. So uh, Doubtfire was a, a long shoot. My school was in Canada and was not really accustomed to dealing with a child actor who was away more than she was in in, in school. And so uh, the process for a kid who works is that you do three hours of school a day on set, as, you know, in addition to, to whatever you're doing for the film. And so back then, of course, pre-internet, you're mailing all of the schoolwork back and they mail you stuff. So it is uh, pretty labor intensive and teachers were not thrilled about kind of the extra work that they had to do with that. I've always heard that there are tutors on set, but I thought that that was kind of their own curriculum. I didn't know that you had to correspond it back to your actual high school. That does seem really complicated. It was really complicated. Yeah. And and, and my my school just wasn't up for it. So they they – just kind of asked me like, hey, you know, can you do us, do us a favor and just not come back? <laughs> I, I don't mean to generalize, but that sounds so Canadian that they would kick you out by asking you to do them a favor. <laughs> it is very Canadian. Uh, so, uh, the, so the fact that you were in Hollywood films, not that that should mean anything to education, but that didn't buy you anything with these people? I like Canadians. I don't care. <laughs> There is some deep-seated resentment under that polite, <laughs> polite veneer of these Canadian administrators. That's what I'm feeling from them. So what happened then? So obviously that is a, a little bit upsetting to a 14-year-old to realize that her high school had just uh, basically shut down her, her Jesus, education. Yeah. So I was clearly upset about that, Robin being the the – sweet soul that he was, asked me what was going on. When I explained the situation, he said, well, here, I'm writing a letter to your high school, to your principal. Here it is. 
you know, let's, let's send them that. And the letter was just so generous and lovely and just said, Lisa is trying to balance a career and her education. Please help her and support her in this and don't kick her out of high school. And so we sent the letter to my principal and didn't hear anything back from them until later I found out someone actually told my my dad this, that the principal um, got the letter, he framed the letter, and he hung it up in, in, in the office oh, of man. the school. Yeah. So it was not uh, it was not successful in the end, but I think it just speaks so much to to who Robin was as an individual that he would kind of put his neck out and and do that for me and the fact that it it didn't work is kind of beside the point yeah. you know oh, it's course, like you yeah. you you stand up for your friends you do the right thing and um and that that is always going to be something that's really precious to me How long did you stay in contact with him we stayed in contact for a while after the filming, but you know, and then it's it's sort of life happens and and everybody's traveling and working and all those sorts of things and it's pre Facebook, so it's harder to keep in touch with people. Yeah. And uh so yeah, we we lost touch, but it's funny because I think I always assumed that we would all get together again. Whether, it, you know, there was a lot of talk about Doubtfire too, but whether or not that happened or if there would be some reunion or some chance for all of us to, to get back together again. And so that was, I think, a really, um, a really eye-opening thing. You just you, – you take so many things for granted that mm-hmm. people are going to be around. And I really wish that, that I had had a chance to, to let him know – what a huge impact that had on me that he, he was really so supportive and, and, and kind to me. And, uh, so that was a really good thing that I, I learned that it's like, you have to reach out to people if they have made an impact and, and done something wonderful and, and, and meaningful for you. Like you gotta tell them now. We'll be back with Lisa Jacob. Lisa, we're back. I don't want to spoil every story in your book, but there are so many good stories that I don't – I hope you don't mind I'm cherry-picking a few. Go for it. Okay. Your father would drive you back to that school <laughs> for lunch and you would go to lunch at that high school. And if I read this right, you, you kind of acting like you still went to school there, right? Oh, totally. <laughs> and so, But no one had any classes with you. That was just a way for you to get a social fix, right, and something you needed and your father understood that. What an interesting experience. So talk about that and and how it was you would go and wait for your friend to get out of class before you would go into the cafeteria. My heart's breaking a little when I read this because I, everybody knows that kind of feeling of, of feeling uh, alone in a high school and the fact that you had to not go to school there but then still act. Everybody's putting up like artifice and walls throughout high school already and you have to act like you're still going to high school there. It's an amazing story. Did I just tell the whole story for you? You did a little bit but you did a good job so I'm good with it. Is there anything you'd like it's- to add to my botched retelling of your story? No. No. I will um- – <laughs> You know, I think I always tried really hard to have a balance between 
the the movie life and the quote unquote normal life. And there were times I really wanted to be like a normal kid mm -hmm. and go to school and sit in the cafeteria and you know complain about the new math teacher and and do those kind of normal kid things because I was on set so often and that really was my 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 main life and and my social life was mostly on set with you know 40-year-old electricians were my friends. You know, that was... Fuzzy the security guy. That <laughs> Fuzzy the security Hell's guard. Angel, yeah. Uh, so I, I loved that and I loved the community that comes on set. But there was also part of me that was like, huh, I'm 14. I feel like I should spend some time in a cafeteria. <laughs> this is sort of what you're supposed to do, right? Uh -huh. So, yeah, going back to my my high school was sort of my way to, to get that, um, that kind of experience with my peers. Apparently, uh -huh. they were they were my my peers, and so I felt like okay, let's let's go and do this. But there was an odd feeling of playing a role when I was doing the stuff that was supposed to be the normal stuff. Yeah, because to get picked up by your dad, you had to kind of go hide in a place where no one could see you when they were back in class, right? I always tried to kind of fly under the radar and just, I mean, all 14-year-olds are like that, right? That's yeah. all you want to do is just blend. You just want to be like everybody else. And so, yeah, I really kind of tried to downplay the thing <laughs> of, I don't actually go to school here. I just eat peanut butter and jelly here. Um, all right. I have to ask you a question about Pierce Brosnan because I'm a huge James Bond fan. And you've worked with two James Bonds, right? Yeah. Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. Yes. What was Pierce Brosnan like? He seems like a, a nice guy. I liked him a lot. Unfortunately, I didn't actually work with him that often. You were, but you did some scenes with. We him. had some yeah. scenes together, but yeah, we weren't. You know, it, it wasn't we kind out. of the same. Yeah, it wasn't sort of the same bond as as the family had. But yeah, I mean, he was amazing, and just you just want to look at him. Yeah, I mean, come on. Come on. And Dalton, now I recently watched a documentary of Dalton and he was out there but in such a wonderful way. What was he like? Oh, so endearingly out there. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the best way to put it. He's he's a lovable mad genius or something. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I love it. It was always fun to sort of be in the makeup trailer with him because he would just have these stories and he, they would just be convoluted and kind of go all over the place. And then he would be like, and then Sting was there. And you're like, what? oh, OK. <laughs> like I had no idea what direction that story was going. Uh, all right. So not three years later, you end up in the biggest movie of 1996, Independence Day. How did that happen? Same old story, just an audition? You just booked it on your merits? or I think it was just an audition. I, I'm always jealous of the actors that have really good audition stories because I don't feel like I do. It was, you know. That means it you're was probably just, just doing your job. Of, it felt very much like just, oh, I had, you know, I don't know, on a Wednesday afternoon, I went over to the studio and I read some lines and then my agent called. So I don't know that it's a very good story, but um, that was fun to film. So. Randy Quaid is now known to be quite a troubled soul. Were there any signs of that at the time or was he just pretty straightforward? No, I absolutely loved him. He seems He was really funny. just an, a, a, a teddy bear of a man that you just wanted to hug him all the time. <laughs> I mean, he was just really, really sweet. Were you really present when Bill Pullman gave that famous presidential speech? Because that has gone down in history as 
probably one of the most heightened, celebrated, wonderfully cheesy speeches in film where he's the president in the cockpit. So were you there when when that happened and got to hear it? I was there. What was the feeling on the set? You got goosebumps. Yeah. Honestly. And it is so cheesy. Again, I hadn't seen that movie forever, so he just did such a great job. I don't know. I feel like sometimes with something that can be um, borderline cheeseball – if the actor's not totally committed to it, you kind of feel awkward exactly, watching yeah, it. Yeah. But he did such a phenomenal job and was just like, screw it. I am going for it uh-huh. that you are all in. Yeah, and he, the, the speech itself is incredible because it goes from basically paraphrasing Dylan Thomas to assigning the holiday of 4th of July to the entire world. To the like world. Being so bold is to say America's holiday is now your holiday. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and he, the fact that he can pull that off – that's incredible. And it doesn't – it's kind of obnoxious, but it doesn't seem obnoxious. No, no. And that's what's important. No, it fits that movie. And I think when I first saw that movie, I didn't fully understand how to take it. Rewatching it for this, I fell in love with it because it's such an homage to the tragedy and like the um, spectacle films of the 70s like Airport and Earthquake and stuff where you just see all these tangential stories come together in one and you embrace the like ridiculousness of it. And I – had so much fun watching that movie. I read the script for it before the audition and I was like, oh no, this is awful. <laughs> this is just, I don't know if I even want to audition for this thing. I mean, there, I, I think I got to like, and then he punches an alien in the face and I'm like, oh God. But it, you know, th- that's the thing. It's so interesting about reading a script and then and then seeing the final product is there they so often don't really correlate and yeah. and and it's kind of amazing to see how that can um how that can turn into something that that is 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 pretty great from something that is kind of ooh that's cringeworthy <laughs> so i just want to ask you a few more questions about some stories from your book i promise not to ruin all of them but the one where you were kind of kidnapped is incredible and harrowing. Looking back on it, I still don't even know what to think about that. But I was at a rap party for a, a, a TV show that I did. And there was a, a woman who came up to me and said, I am a friend of the uh, of the woman who lives here. I'm her best friend. I live just down the road. I just I, – my kids – loved out fire. They would love to meet you. Can you, can you come meet them? And at that point I had gotten kind of used to that doubt fire had, had, had come out. And so I was learning how to navigate kind of the, the public interaction. And there were times when it was pretty intense, but I was, I was kind of, you know, I was never very good at it. To be honest, I was never good at the public stuff. And it was always something that 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 made me uncomfortable and I just always felt like a dork and like I didn't know what to say. But isn't that the mark of a, of a good person? That's my suspicion that, that someone that doesn't feed off that in a sort of like – someone that doesn't feed that off that in a strange way to me is the mark of someone that understands <laughs> The importance of things. I think. <laughs> really? Well, I'll, I will take that because I just always felt like, oh my gosh, as that comes major up, fail on no, my half. As that comes yeah. up in your book over and over, I, I kept thinking like that—that's the sign of someone that understands how things work or something. <laughs> that's I don't very know. sweet. Thank yeah. you. Sorry to interrupt you. So what uh, what ended up happening is I thought, okay, I can I can just go with this woman and meet meet her kids, and I was always very concerned 
about seeming unfriendly or seeming like I was had a big ego or was a brat or something. So I was always trying to be really nice to people. And it's the Canadian in me too. I was like, just trying to be sweet. Uh-huh. And so I, it turned out that this woman lived a little farther away than she said. She's like, oh, no, we have to drive there. I already talked to your mom and the lady that owns oh. the house, and so we have to drive. Because initially you think you're just going to walk next door or something, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, – you know, the, the little hairs on the back of my neck, you know, that sort of stand, stands up and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should, you know, they say don't get in the car, but I'm, they sure do. I'm <laughs> you know, I'm 14 and trying to be nice and I don't want anybody to get mad at me and stuff like that. So I'm like, well, uh, okay. So, you know, like an idiot, I get in the car. And so we end up going to her house and her kids are thoroughly unimpressed with me. They don't really care and they just don't seem to notice that their mother has dragged some kid into the house. And it's quite a long drive, right? Yeah, it was certainly longer than I thought it was going to be. And so I I think that she just kind of was under this impression that I think is unfortunately common, which is, you know, actors aren't real people. Uh And so I was kind of a commodity that she found and wanted to show off in in, in kind of a strange way. And so um, after a little while, I started crying and freaking out and asking her to kind of take me back to the party. And she wanted me to stay and meet her husband. And it all just um, got very convoluted and complicated. And eventually she did um, take me back to the party after I really freaked out. And um, so I, I, I was fine and it all turned out fine. But I think that the reason I wanted to tell that story in the book is just that I think what, what our, our, our culture has kind of done in, in how we view celebrities is, is actually really dangerous. And it's, it's not good for anybody to um, kind of be looking at, at actors like they are gods or you know we have this really dualistic very strange way of looking at actors like they're either gods or they are completely you know unworthy slime Mm -hmm. and uh you know there's this whole middle ground where actors are just people and i think that that gets lost sometimes i could easily see how that could contribute to feeling like your like your life is not yours and that how difficult that would be you have a quote too, that said at one point, my feet hurt and I was running through the list of people I needed to say hello to. I think this was at a premiere so that I could go home and put on some sweatpants. And that's how I feel about every party I ever go to is I'm thinking I can do this. So I get the satisfaction of going home and putting on pajamas and watching TV or something like that or reading a book, you know? Yeah. So when did you realize that you wanted to, for the most part, transition out of acting? Like had you had too much at one point? I think it was kind of a slow realization for me. I looked around at my other actor friends and they were so passionate about about movies and about being actors and I looked at them and I was like, "Wow, I am jealous of that." Hmm. You know, I I I I liked my job. It was it was fine and it was pretty much all I knew and I realized I I was working out of momentum. My entire life was based on momentum. It wasn't really that I was moving in this direction I wanted to be moving in. It was, I was an actor and I 
kept getting work and, and I felt like everybody would think I was crazy if I left LA or made a different choice. So it was, um, I think I just sort of slowly realized, like, I don't, I don't feel like this is my life anymore. You know, I feel like a phony. I feel like I'm, I'm living this life that a lot of other people think is the dream, but it's not actually my dream. And it, it, was clear to me that I was unhappy and that it could lead to kind of stereotypical ridiculous behavior that we see in uh, some child actors. And I didn't want that to be me. I wanted to make a different contribution to the world. Mm-hmm. And so you moved to Virginia, right? I and did. With your boyfriend at the time, Jeremy, yes. who is here today and yes. couldn't be more lovely. And then you guys <laughs> have been married how long now? Uh, we just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. I was reading Mara Wilson's blog and she kind of tells a similar story about why she doesn't act much anymore. Do you guys ever talk about that or keep in touch? We do. Yeah. We lost touch for a long time after uh, Doubtfire, but it was several years ago that we, we got back into contact and it's just spectacular to to be connected with her again we have all of these things in common which is just so funny to us you know we really did feel like sisters you know when we were when we were filming and now we have so many similarities we're like oh it just you know runs in the family our love of sociology and writing (laughs) you know and the panic attacks so it's uh really really wonderful so, so many of the stories that we talked about here, but many more are in your new book, You Look Like That Girl, and you're currently on a book tour, right? Doing some readings. Where can they find this book? Where can they find you? So the book, You Look Like That Girl, is it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, all of that sort of stuff. It's also an ebook, and it's also an audio book that I got you know, marred doing. And <laughs> that's uh, right. That so... sounds like podcast listeners. That's what you should be seeking out. Just knowing that she's doing it while battle scarred. Exactly. Yeah. Like I did this for you and ruined my face. <laughs> and so, uh, I, I blog at lisajacob.net and all the information for the book is you look like that girl.com. And I, Facebook and Twitter and tweet and do all of those fun time-wasting things where I can put up a lot of pictures of my dog. I I do the same with my cat. So I was actually under the impression that Margot, the fact I was going to be here, which is part of the reason I showed up. Now I feel horrible. So Just know that I I record all the other parts of this podcast at home where she is. And if I were to bring her here, everyone's lives would be enriched by her beauty but made miserable by her meowing and her personality. (laughs) Well, there has to be a balance, right? (laughs) There is with her and it is tipped the wrong way sometimes, let me tell you. Uh, Jacob is spelled J-A-K-U-B just so people can find you, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. This is awesome. Let's keep this ball rolling with a new segment that I'm very excited about just to clear up some mess that I made from the last episode. Here we go. I was R2. Like rated R, not like R2-D2. Does that make sense? These jingles are going well. Last episode in my interview with Phil Lamar, I struggled to remember a children's cartoon that was based off of an R-rated movie. I remembered right after the interview that it was Rambo. Rambo and the Forces of Freedom, to be exact. It's where Rambo and his team of commandos, including, quote, mechanical genius Turbo and master of disguise Cat, face off against General Warhawk and his group of baddies called Savage. 
So I've never had more of a response than the flood of tweets naming all of the other R-rated films that have been morphed into toy-selling cartoons, and it led me to do a little bit more research, and I found a couple extras, and I'm going to list them to you here. Check this episode's webpage for the opening credit videos of each as well. Also, thank you to the Geek Tyrant, Pax Holly Blog, and Den of Geek websites for their information on this very important topic. Because getting things right is my middle name, which is why I'd also like to apologize for calling Patricia Arquette Rebecca De Mornay in the last episode. I don't, what can I say? They look alike to me. And I had just watched Risky Business the night before. But I like to get things right. But really, you can't go wrong with either one of them. There. Fixed. Okay, here we go. There are ten of these. The top ten. I've listed them from barely understandable as to why they were marketed to children to most egregious and exploitational. Number 10, let's just start with Rambo and the Forces of Freedom, because it's already out of the bag. But also because even though it was originally an R-rated property, this was the 80s, and military violence was as American as military violence. This had to happen. I used to watch this one, and I had the toys, and I was part of the problem. I do love that, those Rambo movies, though. Am I close enough on the mic? Coming in at number 9... Toxic Crusaders, based on the Toxic Avenger. Technically not an R-rated film because it was left unrated, but we can all agree that if it were rated, it would be lucky to get an R, probably. Now, this cartoon's theme song is a soulful, heavy metal number that finds the Crusaders themselves briefly dancing to and singing along with the theme at the end of the opening titles. Worth watching all of these, really. This film was a comedy. It's not out of the realm of possibility that this concept could be a kid's show, I suppose. But again, it's the 80s and toxic waste is American as apple pie and the proliferation of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Number eight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, I know the TMNT films were not rated R, but the original comics certainly were. They were so violent and ruthless in many ways. I was a reader back in junior high when they were in black and white. I still have my copies. I won't spend too much time on this one because all you need to do is listen back to I Was There Too, episode 17 with Josh Pice, who played Raphael. I talk about it all there. Number seven was not one I was aware of. It's called Roughnecks Starship Troopers Chronicles, based on the Starship Troopers film and even starring the voice of the film's lead actor, Casper Van Dien. This was a CGI cartoon from 1997. I never saw it, and I'm not about to start now. I'm just kidding, because it actually looks surprisingly decent. It's kind of dark. It's produced by Paul Verhoeven, so you know it's got to be weird and inappropriate. Number six, Police Academy the Series, complete with a pretty tight theme song by the Fat Boys. So at least this one was originally a lighthearted romp as a film. I need to get Michael Winslow and his sound effects in here for an interview for this show. I got a little sound effects arsenal in me, too. I'd like to have him mentor me. Number five, Operation Aliens. According to Den of Geek, in 1979, having made an unexpected killing with their Star Wars action figures, Kenner was eager to sign up the next big sci-fi movie to merchandise. That movie was Ridley Scott's Alien. And then the movie came out, and the line was cancelled after just one Xenomorph toy was released. That makes me suffering so much. Allegedly because they realized the film wasn't really suitable for kids. Come the early 90s, 20th Century Fox thought the world's kids might be ready to experience Alien. Kenner were now happily producing toys based on Alien 3, and a Saturday morning cartoon was allegedly in production at a Korean animation studio. A few stills are online, but no clips have ever surfaced. I put the links to the cartoon stills on the episode page, but this is arguably the Alien film least suitable for children. All of them are harrowing in their own way, but Alien 3 
is so bleak. If this thing came out, all our children would have grown up to be just a bunch of Cormac McCarthy's. I also included the original commercial for the Xenomorph alien action figure, which I remember seeing in a department store toy section and being frightened just from the toy. I was an excitable boy. Our number four, Highlander, the animated series. Let's recall that the whole concept of this franchise was that Highlanders had to cut off the heads of their enemies. Done. Shouldn't be a cartoon. But this opening title sequence plays like a New Age sex meditation. Keep a lookout for Needle Dick Nose. The bug fucker, Mac Weldon, your underwear needs. Rounding out the top three is Robocop, another Paul Verhoeven joint. Still holding out for the Showgirls cartoon, Paul. This movie was so violent, it originally received an X rating. The guy shot by Ed 209 in the film was squibbed so profusely I wept at the time. But props to this opening title sequence for maturely handling Robocop's origin story by saying Officer Murphy was mortally wounded. That's clear to children age eight. Also, this has to be the only kids cartoon ever set in Detroit. In the number two spot, Conan the Adventurer. Geek Tyrant puts it best, quote, Just to remind you of the kind of character Conan was, when he is asked what is best in life, he responds with, Crush your enemies, see them driven before you. And I hear a lamentation of the women. To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women. And finally, at number one, it's Paul Haggis's Crash, the animated series. No. Look, there were only nine of these things I could find, so I needed an extra one. But wouldn't that be great? It would at least justify the level of melodrama in that film. Ah. How can one man have written my favorite film, Casino Royale, and my least favorite film, Crash? I don't know. But I do know this. That's all for... I was R2. Like rated R, not like R2-D2. Does that make sense? These jingles are going well. My thanks to Lisa Jacob and to Matthew Berry, who made that connection possible. If you know someone and can connect me to a great guest for I Was There Too, please email me at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. You can also find me at Matt Gorley on Twitter. There is an I Was There 2 Twitter, but I'm not currently using it, so stick with me right now. I'm also at Matt Gorley on Instagram and Matt Gorley on Letterboxd, where you can go to my profile and check out the I Was There 2 list to see which interviews are upcoming. Okay, that's it. Stay tuned for next episode when I have one again. Good night, bye. Pop. Pop? Pop. Pop. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.